My name is Philip Palumbo, and I'm CEO and founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. Welcome to my show, The Palumbo Show, where we will be interviewing some of the most successful business owners and C-suite executives about their journey to success. After 20 years of working for some of the largest Wall Street banks and having the courage to go off my own, I now completely get it. It changes your inner soul because your name is on the door and it gives you a certain level of energy that is unexplainable. I am looking forward to this journey and learning from these self-made business people, their struggles and their successes, and how we can use that to optimize to our fullest potential, how we serve our clients and how we live our lives. Okay, hello everybody. My name is Philip Palumbo. Welcome to the Palumbo podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs and how they got to the top. Today, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have Christina Mandanza, um, who currently is a lifelong journalist and a media entrepreneur. So a lot of great life lessons that Christina can share with us, her journey in media and as a journalist. So totally looking forward to this, Christina, and thank you so much for your time today. No, you bet. I'm glad to be here, Philip. Glad to talk to you and um, excited about, you know, what you're into, which is entrepreneurs and, and how they move in the world. I love it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. So, so let's start off with first, how did you get into the space that you're in and, and get involved with being an entrepreneur? Was it something that you found that you wanted to do when you were younger? Walk me through what that, what that looked like. So I've had kind of that entrepreneurial um, uh, you know, aspiration since I was in college. I mean, I, but entrepreneurism for me was always out of necessity. It was out of, you know, I need to solve my own problem. Right. So when I was in college, I mean, I couldn't afford to go to college. I was, uh, you know, working small part-time jobs, but I, I put myself through college. So I thought, what can I do? And I started a business, uh, while I was still in college to, uh, it was a fitness business for, uh, young women in the dorms who wanted to make sure they didn't gain the freshman 15, I started doing fitness courses. It was something that I had some um, skill in. And so I started this business and I put myself through the first few years of school uh, before my master's degree doing that. And I would teach courses and classes. And so that was an entrepreneurism by necessity. A few years later, uh, when I was well into my journalism career, I started just out of curiosity. I started a restaurant. Now I have, I'm not a, I'm not a cook. I don't cook. I happen to uh, have a, a, a familial relationship with someone who did. So we started a restaurant concept and I just found the whole act of starting it more than even the business of being a restaurateur, the act of starting it, writing the business plan, uh, looking for investors, all of that. I found that really exciting and fun. And then I continued on with my, my life as a journalist, sold off that business, continued on. And then one of my assignments was to go to China one year. This was like year 2000. And I went with a bunch of California entrepreneurs who were talking to Chinese officials about selling different kinds of businesses. They were everything from you know, environmental cleanup equipment to security equipment. And so I attended all these meetings and watched kind of this entrepreneurism on an international scale. Right. These aren't large corporations talking to these uh, Chinese businessmen. These were medium-sized businesses. And I became fascinated with that and the stories of entrepreneurism. I started in my journalism leaning in to telling stories of entrepreneurism. And then I had kind of a, a, a career pivot. So in 2017, 
I'd been working for the same media company for 22 years, and they decided to go another direction. And they did that with myself and my co-anchor and uh, like hundreds of other people in the country. So I found myself needing, again, to start a business uh, out of you know the need to pay my bills. But I thought this time I'm going to use all of my journalism skills and uh, all of the experience that I have, and I'm going to start a media company. And that's what I did. And we've been now at it about four years. I work with people all over the country. We've done international um, narrative marketing and 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 store and you know freelance journalism, and I'm having a blast doing it. Wow, good for you. That's a great. That's a great story. Thank awesome. you. So tell me about the everything you've, you've been in media for approximately twenty two years. You said. Well, 22 years with the same company. I've been a journalist for almost 30 years. Uh, I've done television, radio, newspaper. In fact, I'm kind of in a hybrid situation now in that I have a regular job as a radio host. I host four hours of uh, drive time radio every morning, and then I have my company as well. Yeah. So being a journalist, what are the top three things that you learn in order for someone to be successful? I mean, I always feel like if you're a journalist... You know, when I'm listening to radio or watching television, I always feel like, oh my gosh. And, you know, I do a lot of media appearance as well, get interviewed. And it does take a lot of time and effort. And, you know, as you know, once you're on camera, you just want to make sure that you have everything right and you're prepared, et cetera. So walk me through as a journalist what you need to do to succeed. Well, I think the top thing you need as a journalist is curiosity. I have always been a curious person, read a a lot as a kid. I'm interested in other people and their stories and their journeys. And I think, so as as a journalist, you really do have to be curious about all things. I never wanted to be locked into a beat when I was a journalist because I was curious about so much. I love science stories. I love political stories. I, you know, even got into some of the crime stories. So I, I did work several beats during my career, but I always liked being a generalist because I just was curious about way too much. So I didn't think that's the number one. Uh, the number two, I think the, the advocacy that you engage in as a journalism, as a journalist needs to be for the viewer. So I'm, I'm kind of old school in my journalism in that I believe objectivity is achievable. A lot of people don't even think it's possible anymore. I think it is achievable. But I, but I think it, when you look at being an advocate, when I talk about being an advocate as a journalist, I'm an advocate for the viewer, for the listener, for the reader. Um, I want to try to uh, pick through the information that's available, get the interviews that give them what they need to know about a particular subject and, uh, and, and tell both sides of the story so they can make up their own minds about whether or not they are for or against whatever I'm talking about. So I do believe you need objectivity, you need curiosity, and you also need confidence, especially when it comes to presentation. I mean, you know, you've done many television interviews and radio interviews. Uh, you have to be confident in the information that you're presenting or else uh, your credibility is, you, know, you won't have any credibility. So I think those three things are really important. I agree with you. The assertiveness is, is really super, super important. So let's, let's say a viewer who's on my audience that's listening to right now, they want to get into journalism or get on media, ex- media, et cetera. But they're like, oh my gosh, like me staring into this camera, much like I'm doing right now. and just gives me complete stage fright. Are you a natural at this or did you have to work at it? Well, I think everyone has to work at it. It's not natural to look into the lens of a camera and be able to converse as you were 
you would with someone face to face when you can see all of their nonverbal cues and, you know, feel something coming back. So it is not a natural procedure, but um, it is, it's completely learnable. And I think it is by anyone. So when I uh, mentor young journalists, as I often do, or mentoring uh, some of my corporate clients who need to be doing on-camera interviews, I, I, what I tell them is when you're looking into the camera, I want you to imagine telling that story to someone that you talk to on a daily basis or you know a weekly basis. Like uh, when I was first starting out in the business, I was very young. I started when I was 17 years old in radio and then had my first TV job before I was 21. And so I would always imagine it as my mother. So I, I told my mother and talked to my mother every day and I told her everything. So when I was doing a story, I would, uh, I would tell it to the camera as if I were telling it to my mother. And then as I got a little bit older, I thought, well, I'm going to tell, tell the story to the person who wants to hear it. So, you know, whether or not it was some, um, you know, school board meeting that I thought was boring uh, as a journalist, and I hear I have to cover this school board meeting, or I, I, they're not boring these days, but <laughs> back then they were, uh, or I, I have some other story I have to cover. I would imagine as I looked into the camera, telling the story to the person who's sitting on the edge of their seat, wanting to hear more about this. Love so that. if you can personalize the viewer, it makes it so much easier to communicate with them through, uh, you know, a pane of glass. You're going to laugh. So my son, Andrew, my middle guy, right. And I was on TV and my wife and I, they were watching at home with my other three sons. So they're watching and so forth. So when Andrew it was like maybe two, three days later, he goes, daddy, he goes, you know, when I see you on camera on TV, it doesn't seem like you're yourself. You know, you're sitting like this and all proper. He goes, you should be more like yourself. So my marketing media team, I, my son Andrew's in my car and we're driving home from actual lacrosse practice. And I called up my marketing team, right? And he gets on the phone. I said, you're not going to believe what my son just said. He goes, what did he say? I said, Andrew, tell him what he said. And my son Andrew tells this, my teammate, um, what, you know, what he said, he goes, thank you so much, Andrew. I've been trying to tell your dad that from the beginning. <laughs> you know, so this is like, I don't know, maybe like a month and a half ago. And then I realized, just like you said, like, you, you just have to just like relax and don't, you don't just be this uptight person. Like just tell the story, like as if your client's in front of you and it shouldn't be any different than that. So, you know, again, you know, once I've been, I don't know, I've been in media now for, since I launched my firm, maybe two years and, you know, two months, call it like two years, right? So it took a little bit of time to get acclimated to that. But then, but then once I did, it's like, you know, you're talking to the cameras, if you're talking to, you know, again, a client, a friend, and it should be no different than that. So do you agree, you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was first starting as an anchor, um, a, another woman who had been in the business for a long time, she said, you know, if you, if you try to be someone that you're not, right. when it hits the fan, that facade's going to crack and everyone's going to see who you are anyway. So right. just be who you are. From the beginning. Yeah. 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 Totally true. It's totally true. I mean, it takes time. It takes repetition, right? Just like anything oh, yeah. else. Yeah, it takes reps. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And now that I got to this point where I understand and I get it, it's uh, it does make a world of a difference. So totally appreciate that. So the next question, which I'm curious to know about, right? So when you're watching different television stations, let's say Fox and you have CNN, you talked about being objective before. In my view, I look at it like exactly what you just said. 
I'm going to give you my view and opinion about something. Again, I'm going to give you both sides, but then, and I'm going to make, I'm going to let you make your opinion about what you think. Why do you tend to get polarized views on different channels that, that many people watch? Well, I think because it works. I mean, it, it gets people to tune in. Yeah. I mean, people have to know the difference between the, the line between commentator and journalist has really been uh, blurred, I think, over the last you know couple of decades. And you know, if people can see, well, uh, Tucker Carlson is a commentator. You know, he's not a journalist; he's a commentator. Uh, Sean Hannity is a commentator, uh, and the, they're they're going to have opinions because that's what commentators do. And, you know, you look at uh, journalists and you look at what they do. And, uh, but I think a lot of journalists have kind of dipped their toe into the commentator category and vice versa, but it, it works. I mean, CNN first and then Fox news built reputations on a lot of their commentary. Um, you know, when you first looked at CNN, when it first started out, it was pretty straight journalism. And then when it had a competitor, Fox found that by having a lot of commentators on their air, they got viewership. It worked. People wanted to tune in. They, they felt like the commentator, they liked seeing that emotion from someone on TV. So I do think it works. Now, does it serve the best public interest, you know, to have one side or the other only? Right. I don't know that it does, but I think, you know, especially through social media, we are much more siloed than we used to be as a society. It's, you could see it, you know, just yeah. in Washington, DC, yeah. the, the rhetoric back and forth. It's right. much more aggressive. Yeah. I think the most important thing is as I think about things, I think about like a Tucker Carlson or, or Lemon or uh, even when- uh, Oh, Lemon, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Or when Cuomo was there and, and then you have uh, Hannity and so forth, right? These various commentators that you have on there. I think the key thing is that what I, and this is really important I think people know, is people want to know what your opinion is. They don't yeah. want you to hedge. They don't want you to say, my opinion is, they want to know what are you actually feeling? Because in the end, if you're not on camera and you're just you and let's say your brother or your, your yeah. mom or your dad or your, or your wife or your, your husband, like you're going to tell them exactly how you're feeling and not hedge because that's how you truly feel, right? right? right. So like when, I, when I get on camera and I get, and I get asked a question about what I think about the markets or the economy, like I'm being straightforward. Like I believe we're going into recession. I don't say that's it, my opinion. I, I believe we're going into recession. Yes, you believe it. Absolutely. I mean, I could be wrong, obviously. Um, I think people know that intuitively, but that's just how, and that's one key thing that people have to understand. Like you need to have an opinion and don't be scared to have an opinion. Right. But it's, an opinion based on your facts and experience. Exactly. Correct. Don't, yeah. don't give erroneous or egregious facts that, that you know, you don't do your homework, but how you truly feel based on you understanding the facts give your opinion. And, and when right. you give your opinion, people will tune into you. Right. Right. Tell me, tell it's me, it's tell it's me it's about that. And do you agree with that in your experience with that? I do. I, you know, so on my radio show in the morning um, there, like I said, there is, we have, we have also blurred those lines between journalism and commentary in which we talk about it. But when I, when I bring up uh, an, an opinion, if I'm going to, you know, take a step into the commentary realm on the radio show, um, I go by what, my facts and experiences have been. And I always hedge it by saying not everyone agrees and I could be wrong, but this is, this is what my experience has taught me about this particular situation. 
Um, I don't wade into uh, heavy political talk because I don't believe that's my place as you know, trying to serve the journalism side. I try to present both sides of that. But if it's a topic like, you know, like, like, you know, recession, or if it's a topic like what if I'm talking about media, I will give my opinion on where I think media is and where it's going, uh, because I have 30 years of experience in that realm. So right. I have facts to draw upon. Right. So when you say journalism, journalism versus commentary, right, what's the difference? Well, journalism is if you're going to if I'm going to present a story on uh, Ukraine and the war with Russia and Ukraine, I'm going to give the facts about where the troops are, what's happening, how many refugees, all of that. I'm not going to say, boy, those horrible Russians are in there beating up on the Ukrainians. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to dive into that. I'm going to give journalistic facts. So that to me is journalism. You get the facts about what's happening, where it's happening, why it's happening, how much money is being spent, so that people can look at the situation and understand what is happening without commentary. Now, if if someone wants to do a commentary on the relationship between Russia and Ukraine and how it went bad, why they think it went bad, and they have expertise in that, that would be more on the commentary side. So it's somebody opining about their about what they about their, their opinion. opinion. Right. 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 Whether you're opining about, about about a certain situation or um, you're presenting you're presenting facts, right? So tell me, walk me through, like how much effort do you put? Let's say, for example, I call you up and say, "Hey, Christina, I want you to talk about Russia invading Ukraine." Mm-hmm. How much time will you spend to present facts and go through facts and understanding before you get on and talk about whatever it is that you're going to talk about? Walk me through that process. So like like the research process, like how much research? Yeah, well, like you said, right. Like you said, in journalism, you got to go, you're going to come to, you're going to come to the table with facts about a specific situation. Exactly. How much time you spend, what what that looks like, et cetera. Okay. So, uh, you know, what I'll do usually if I'm, you know, when we were given a story assignment, um, I'll start by, you know, checking every source I can online, trying to find uh, the best information. If I find a piece of information, I try to get it sourced at least three times from three different sources, whether it's a call I have to make, an email I have to send, um, I try to check it out because I don't wanna give people incorrect information, right? right. So that's, that's my process of how I usually research stuff. I'll try to interview people involved in the situation. If I can get them on the phone, we'll get interviews or get them in front of a camera, we'll get interviews and try to find authorities on that particular subject to talk to. People that I know have the experience and the skill and the talent and the understanding of the situation. So you're also online going on Google and looking at different articles, perhaps, you know, uh, of, of reputable newspapers, right. and then perhaps interview certain people that may have direct knowledge about a particular matter. Right. I'll follow up, make phone calls, you know, that kind of thing, and try to get as many facts as I can together about the story that I've been able to source several times. Mm-hmm. And then when you gather those facts, is it possible that some of your facts can be incorrect because of the sources that you depended on or people you interviewed, perhaps? Yes. I mean, that could happen. I mean, definitely. But I, I try to do my due diligence by finding multiple sources. For the yeah. same fact. So I don't just I don't just take what, you know, Politico is going to write. Um, I will find the expert that they interviewed, call that person, email that person. I'll try to like get their fact verified by someone else. So I think multiple sources is the way that you cut down on mistakes. And if you do make a mistake, you need to step up and take 
uh, responsibility. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's so funny. When I was first in the business and I was at Merrill Lynch back in my days to ask an advisor a question about a certain matter as it relates to investing, <laughs> this is really funny. I used to work in, I used to be in a cubicle when I started in the business. So I used to go to some of the, the big guys in, or gals in, in an office and I used to go to them and ask them a question. Then they would see me walk out of their office. Then they would see me go into another office and, and then we go in the first person office I went to, they said, Phil, did you ask the, the other two people the same questions you asked me? I said, I said, yeah, I did. <laughs> well, you don't trust my, my answer. I said, it's, I don't trust your answer. I just want to get build confidence and conviction that what you said is true after speaking to two or three other people, just to build up my conviction that in fact, it's correct. And by the way, can I tell you how many times I've done that and how many times that first answer to my question was wrong. So it right. really is helpful. Like to your point, to really make sure you source it, ask multiple people to build that confidence. Right. Um, so you're being interviewed in media, as I have and you have. Have you ever thought about getting asked a question that you may not know the answer to? And if you're ever in that situation, or if you've been in that situation, how would you advise someone like me and others that are in media? You know, if it's a question that I'm that I don't know the answer to, I, I think I would be honest and say, you know what, I don't have the answer to that right now because I haven't seen the the, the proper research that would lead me to that assumption. So, I mean, I, I would just tell them outright, I don't know the answer to that question. Glad to look into it for you. Uh, the information that I have, uh, you know, has not told me anything about that topic, or that's an interesting question. That's a, that's a topic I think that, you know, I'd like to look more into. Yeah. So I, I think it's okay to say you don't have the answer to everything. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. Because then if you fake it, then, you know, and then all of a sudden oh, no. you, well, you don't want to do that either. So yeah. I agree with you. No, I, I, first of all, I appreciate that very much. And that's, uh, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. So, so Christina, so you have this busy life, iHeartRadio, your own business. What does day-to-day life look like for you? Well, <laughs> I'm up at 3 a.m. The alarm clock goes off at 3 a.m. Um, and wow. yeah, I'm up at 3 a.m. every morning. I'm to the studio by four. Uh, we have our editorial meeting and then the show takes off like um, like a high-speed train at five o'clock and you better be on it. So we're there from 5 a.m. till 9 a.m. And during that entire time, we're we're building the show as we we're, we're flying the plane as we as we um, build it. <laughs> wow! So we're building the show. So I usually have several screens up in front of me. We're pulling in news from all over the world. Uh, we have usually some some live reporters that check in, and uh, a lot of back and forth with my co-anchor and I and our, our executive producer. So that goes until about nine a.m. Usually I have a couple of interviews to do right after that. Right. Uh, with people for the next day. We have a quick editorial meeting and I'm out the door by 10 a.m. And then I start on my business. So I'll come home. I start making phone calls to my clients. I line up the, the production shoots that I need to line up. And uh, or maybe I'll be working on editing. Today, I'm going to be working on writing for a client. So I've, I've taken all this video and now I need to transcribe everything and start putting, putting the stories together. Right. And so I'll usually do that until about two o'clock in the afternoon when my daughter from who lives in Australia calls. Wow. I'll have a quick conversation with her, hit the gym, and then I'm pretty much spent after that. So I'm pretty I'm usually far. in bed by about seven o'clock. Oh my goodness, that is incredible. Good for you. What a that's a productive day. So you work yeah. out. So obviously you work out after your day. You don't work out to start your day. No, I wish I could. I'm really better working out in the morning, and I love yeah. working out in the morning. Um, yeah. but I just don't have time. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I basically schedule. Like 
<laughs> you basically schedule, you can't. It's amazing, you know. I mean, so you've been into fitness, which I want to get into in a moment. So, but the uh, but when I work out in the morning compared to not working out, it's like night and day. My gosh, my endorphins are so lifted when I work out in the morning. I feel amazing all throughout the day. It's such, it's such a difference. I mean, people, I know it's tough to wake up. Like today I actually did sleep in, you know, until 6.30. Normally I wake up at 4.30. Um, I do that about five days, four days a week, but it's, it's like night, it's like night and day. I mean, it's so nice. It's peaceful in the morning. And then by, by, by nighttime, like you just said, I, I am ready to go to bed and spend by, you know, 9 a.m., 9 p.m. Then you want then obviously, you know, you want to try to read a book, you know, that, I mean, you get stuff in to, you know, get, maybe get 10, 15 minutes of reading in just to read up on, on whatever. I'm big on audiobooks. So during the day when I'm driving place to place or when I'm working out of the gym, that's what I listen to. I listen to audiobooks. I listen to podcasts. Um, that's how I kind of fill myself with information during the day. And I, I mean, I listen to hardcore science books because I love science and I'm into that. Um, I'm listening. And, and then, I, you know, when I need a little junk food for the brain, I'll put on some Dean Koontz or, you know, something yeah. like that. So a little yeah. fiction. But yeah, I constantly have several audiobooks going, usually fiction and nonfiction. You know, it's funny. So when I work out, I started doing the podcast thing too and, and the audiobook thing, right? But I kind of said to myself, gosh, like, isn't working out supposed to be my time to kind of get away from that stuff, sort of, right? Because here I am on my audiobook and I'm going to, like save that segment, save that segment. As I'm working out, I'll go into the phone and <laughs> go like, and it's like, I really shouldn't be doing that. If I'm working out, I should be like, get your mind away from everything, put some music on yeah. you know, and enjoy your workout. What are your thoughts in terms of going the way we probably used to do things, the way we're doing things now? I love, okay, so I love the art of storytelling, whether I'm telling the story or someone is telling me a story. So I find uh, listening to something like a podcast or a book very relaxing as I work out. Wow. I can let my mind kind of like think about whatever concept, you know, I, I love, I love physics story and, you know, um, information about physics and quantum entanglement. And it's just fascinating to me. Wow. I'll listen to that and I'll just let it take me away and, and, you know, and I'll get my leg workout done. I, I love doing it. I think it helps me focus on my workout. Wow. That is really, really cool. I love it. That's great. So when you were in fitness or, or being in fitness, right? So what, what have you learned about fitness and diet throughout your life when you used to be involved with it and now? Uh, you know, I would say um, cardio is not going to help you lose weight. Why do you say uh, that? Uh, because it doesn't change the, it doesn't change your body. That This is just my experience. Okay. Sure. I could be wrong. Yeah. It does burn calories, but weightlifting is the fountain of youth. Wow. Weight lifting heavy weights as heavy as you can. You should be doing it. Right. So let's talk about the heavy weight thing. Right. So I do work out and I have a friend that I grew up with where uh, we lift weights mm -hmm. and my concern of lifting. And I agree with you with everything you said, because I feel like when I lift, when I lift heavy weights, I feel like I'm really getting, getting that pump once I'm done. Right. I feel like the blood is really flowing, but I'm concerned about getting hurt. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think you have to lift, you know, with good form. Like for instance, uh, I'm in my fifties now. I don't do a lot of squats with weights on my back anymore. I don't, I mean, I do, I do a lot. I do Pilates type stuff. I do yeah. that kind of thing, but I still lift heavy weights. I still like my extensions, my hamstring curls, you know, my, um, my, the, when you're on the sled, the, um, I, I do a lot of weight on that as much as I can do. Cause I right. think it's important for bone health, especially for women, right. it's important for bone health and weightlifting changes the look of your body. You can be thin because you run all the time, 
but not toned. Yeah, I've seen that before. I mean, so we've yeah. got gals who run, you know, 15 miles, yeah. you know, 20 yeah. miles a week. I totally agree. You know, I want to fill out my jeans. <laughs> I want, <laughs> exactly. you know, my arms. I want to, you know, be able to wear a tank top into my 80s if I want to. You go. So yeah. You've got to lift those weights. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Do you do any cardio at all? I do. Yeah, I do. I do probably three days a week cardio. I used to run, like I used to go out and run like 10 miles at a whack. And then I just, you know, that to me is what breaks down my body. I mean, I, I, my knees, my hips, um, you know, you get that, you get plantar fasciitis and you can't get rid of it for like six months. Yeah. So I do a lot of elliptical trainer. I do run cause I like to run. It's relaxing. So I'll, but I don't ever do more than three to five miles anymore. Um, and I walk my husband and I, every night, that's kind of our time together after dinner, immediately nice. after dinner, we do the dishes, we take a walk we'll go right. out miles and just yeah. walk and kind of catch up on our day. Very nice. Very nice. And do you keep up on, on markets and the economy and what you do as, as a journalism on iHeart? Do you think about that? Yeah, we actually have a, a financial reporter um, who's with a firm in town and uh, Kelly, his name is Kelly Brothers. Great guy. He, he checks in and he does some financial news for us. Um, and then, you know, yeah, we do keep uh, track. I mean, I'm, I'm interested. It's one of those topics. I can't say I know there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Um, but just over the years in covering it, uh, there's a lot I do know. So uh, I try to keep up as much as I can, not only because of, you know, my personal interest in retiring someday and and my own personal finances, uh, but also as my children now, I have adult children, they're in their early 20s. Yeah. And I am shocked that there are only like 12 states in the country that require financial education. It's, un, it's, un, it's unreal. What I know now, I wish that I knew when I was young. I know, me too. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to help both of our daughters as they make financial decisions early on. And I'm like, okay, you guys got to line up this. You know, t- My young daughter works at Starbucks. I'm like, get on that 401k. Yeah. You need to be, you know, starting as early as possible, saving I mean, I think, you know, in my early 20s, I didn't pay a lot of attention other than we had someone, a financial planner that, there that said, if you save this much a month, you're going to be able to pay for your kid's college. Well, that didn't happen because tuition rates went up so high, we could afford, you know, a half of what we thought we'd be able to afford right, right. high school. Right. So, you know, and I think that it's just... Uh, it's it's so important for young people early on to get a handle on their finances. They don't understand. You will your fifty year old self will thank you if you just start saving as soon as you get a job. That is so true. I, I never forget. I was working in a restaurant, and this gentleman that was older at the time—I don't know, maybe he was like fifty-five—and he really seemed like he knew the business really well. He was an employee of the restaurant, right? Uh, but more like quote unquote a manager. And I said to him one time, we were working late, we were closing a restaurant together. And I said to him, I said, how come you don't own your own restaurant? You seem like you really know what you're doing. And, and you'd be, I don't know, I'd, I can't, I would, I could see you more in that type of realm versus you being a manager or, or just a worker like you went out. And he goes, Phil, really, I, I really appreciate that. But my problem is that I don't know the value of a nickel. And that's why I don't own my own business. He goes, until I can really understand the value of a nickel, you know, I just, unfortunately, I spend everything I make and. And, and all that type of stuff. And when, you know, when you really think about that, and I learned that at a young age, people have to understand, people say to themselves, I'll wait till I make 300,000 a year, 500,000, a million dollars a year, then I'll start saving, right? The reality is, is that you should learn the value of saving right away. So even if you're young, I don't know, 10 years old, 12 years old, your parents give you $5 to do something, 
take $2.50 and put it in savings. And, and so learn the value, even if you're saving $10 a month, learn how to save. I got to ask this question just the other day. What advice I can give somebody who's young? It's not even so much investing your money. It, the most important thing is saving your money. When you learn how to save your money, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, by the way, but when you learn how to, when you learn how to save money, everything else will come without right. a doubt, you know? So that's the mindset younger people really have to have and not wait till I make this amount of money to start saving. You know, and I also think, you know, so many parents, uh, they, they put their kids through college, their kids don't pay a dime throughout college. They, they, their kids don't have a job throughout college. Um, and, and I don't, it, my personal opinion is I, I don't think it's a good idea. I think kids need early on to have some skin in the game and understand what they're getting uh, and, and the value of it. I, I mean, I was, I was in graduate school. Uh, I went back to graduate school in my forties and I was talking to this young woman who was also in graduate school with me. She uh, was 23 years old. And I, I said to her, so what are you going to do with this degree? And she goes, well, I got to find a job because I got to pay back my loans. And I said, well, you're 23 years old. How many, how much in loans? She says, I have $120,000 in loans. And I thought, oh my gosh, you are saddled with that for decades. How are you ever going to buy a house? Right. How are you ever going to, you know, have a life? I mean, so I, I think that so often we don't understand when we're young, the, the ramifications of debt. Uh, so my husband and I, with our daughters, just, you know, what we tried to do is uh, we took advice from a friend of ours, an older friend of ours. We pay for everything the first year. Second year, you have to pay for your books and your parking. Wow, that's great. Third year, you have to pay for your room and board and your books and your parking. We'll get tuition. And then the last semester of your senior year, you pay for everything. Wow, that's a great lesson. I like it. And, and if you have to take out loans, that's what you have to do, but no more than $10,000, no more. That's it. Yep. That's and, great. and I, and I, I'm, I hope it serves them later in life, but, and that was something that a friend of ours had done. And at the time when he was telling us about, it, I thought that is so smart that makes sure that kids, I mean, my husband and I put ourselves through school. We didn't have anyone pay for our school. We put ourselves yeah. through and we're very proud of that, but it took us both a long time to yeah. get through school. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I agree with that. I think, you know, it's interesting when I think about the way, you know, I started everything really from zero, from negative, and then I built it up, thank God. And this sounds like you you the same. I wonder what these, you know, with children of today, not, this is not for everybody. I'm, I, I don't know if there's the same type of, you know, uh, work ethics that kind of we had when we were younger. I just wonder if that's going to carry over to our children and, and, and where they're going to have the fire that we had to, to really push the needle in life. That's what yeah. I, you know, because because I almost feel like you just said you pay for all their school, most parents, especially kind of areas that are more affluent versus the way I grew up in a blue collar black background where I literally started working at 13 and I learned to value work ethic, all that type of stuff. So I wonder what that's going to look like. Yeah, I know. I, I wonder too. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I feel like our daughters have a really good work ethic. They both have at one point had you know, two or three jobs. So they, they have a good work ethic. Um, I think, you know, when I look at this younger generation, uh, there's, you know, there's positives and negatives that I see. I mean, I think the right. work ethic thing could be an issue, but I also think this generation has secured things in the workplace that I wouldn't have never dreamed of. 
I mean, things like, you know, I'll just give an example. Um, you know, when I was, uh, after I had children, I mean, if you wanted to like, uh, you know, pump at work, you went into the bathroom, right? That's what you did. And nowadays, uh, they're demanding that employers make some of these accommodations for them so that they right. can, you know, live their lives in a dignified manner, not have to be in the bathroom doing that. And right. that's not something people in my generation would have thought to ask for or right. demand. Right. So they are uh, forcing employers to make improvements in the workplace, which I think is a positive thing that the right. young people are doing. Right. Um, I, I, I do also think that they have an understanding that employers are not always as loyal to you as you are to them. And uh, because they are tend to be more job hoppers, I think that's, you know, I don't know if that's a positive or negative thing, but I don't think employers are as um, uh, loyal to their employees as they used to be. Maybe with this, you know, difficulty getting people on the job and keeping them on the job, that'll change. Um, but I think that the younger generation has an understanding of that. And they're they're less willing to to put up with one thing if they can go somewhere else and make more money and do better. Well, that's the that's the problem, right? So it's so back in the day, I don't know, 20, 30 years, 30 years ago, people stayed in one one company for their whole career mm-hmm. and they did great and they had a certain amount of money left in terms of uh, 401ks or any type of retirement plus a pension, et cetera. Yeah. Where, where today, but the, the only issue with staying in one company to get that to get to kind of that next level is sometimes difficult where you can just get to the next level by making that next move. Right. Right. right? right. So, and it kind of moves the needle and that's the problem, you know, with, uh, that's, I think what's different today, maybe than it was before or before there was maybe more of a loyalty factor on both sides, the employer and the employee. Oh, definitely. So, they used to have pensions. Who has yeah. pensions now? Right. Right. I no mean, one. Yeah, nobody gets a pension anymore. Nobody, I mean, the, the the health benefits at most jobs are not great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And listen, that could have been the turning point when they changed the system from defined benefit plans, which are the pension plans, defined contribution. Now the employees mainly on their own when it comes to retirement. So, hey, why do I kind of need you? I could just continue this right. somewhere else, make more money and, and all so on and so forth. So it's kind of interesting. I, I felt that my clients and friends, when they made those jumps, they made a jump in their career in a very, very lucrative and positive way. So, um, so last question for you, Christina. So you said you work with entrepreneurs. What, what have you noticed about entrepreneurs that is different than employees? Um, I would have to say like this, um, ethereal optimism. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, I really do. The, the entrepreneurs I've met uh, are, you know, things, things aren't a problem. They're a hurdle. I mean, it's just, uh, it's solvable. Every problem is solvable. I just have to find the right answer. And, and that's, I, I respect that so much. And it's why, you know, being around other entrepreneurs is such a charge because I just feel like they have this optimism and this self-management and self-reliance that, oh yeah, okay. It's a big problem, but I can solve it. I'll figure it out. It's I so, love that. It's, it's so, so true. It's like the energy, you can feel the energy. I was away with my family just recently. We're at this beautiful hotel and I met this gentleman who his son was playing with my son in, in basketball and we started conversing and he just sold his business for like huge money. It was like fireworks going off, Christina, with us in terms of talking about business and having our own business and vision and all these types of things. And you said you totally, totally nailed it. 
in terms of how entrepreneurs and really how we are. We have this optimistic view that is so, in, in the, how many people have you met that just have these negative views that everything is negative, everything comes out of their mouth is negative. I just, I just won't go there. And right. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? So like, then you ask yourself like, well, why, how did, how did that happen? How did you, how did you form like that? Right. How did you get this mindset like that? And I think, I think for me, believe it or not, I think a lot of it has to do with like listening to Tony Robbins videos. Uh, at the time it was, you know, DVDs and, and then David Tracy, Brian Tracy, rather Jim Rohn, and just listen to what these guys had said. I kind of trusted them. Right. So, and I, and I say that because anytime some type of negative thought went in my head, I don't know, it's just like, it pops out. It's, I don't have time for it. It just, it leaves, it leaves. And I go right back to staying on track. So why do entrepreneurs have this, this mindset and this energy versus others who don't? Well, I think, I think it's because it's the motivation is the, um, Motivation is the fuel that drives the engine. So they feed that. I think entrepreneurs feed that wolf. Yeah. That's when they feed, they feed the one of optimism and motivation and they do fill themselves with people who, who, who think the same way. I'm the yeah. same way. I've listened yeah. to, you know, Tony Robbins forever. I listened to, I listened to Mel Robbins. I listen. Yeah. I mean, she's I listen great too. She's great. She's awesome. So awesome. I listen to anyone who has a, a motivational, um, all those self-development books. I think I've read them all. I love them all. And I feed that part of myself. And I think other entrepreneurs do too. I try to surround myself with people who um, have a similar entrepreneurial mindset. Um, and and I, I watch them solve problems and I'm inspired by that. I mean, I just had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who um, I've known him for years. And he was telling me about his, he's buying like his third Airbnb because his other two are doing so well and he's so excited about it. And um, he's gonna, you know, he's like, I've, I've replaced my income a couple of times over now. and. Uh, and that was inspiring to hear. So, yeah, I, th I think they just, they surround themselves with people that are inspirational. They they, they take in information that is motivational um, and they know and, and have confidence that they can solve the problem because they have to, there is no other way, but forward. <laughs> there, there is no other way. I mean, and I always say, I always say like, I would totally prefer this way than the other way because you go through life once like why would you want to go through life having these constant negative feelings and these and these people that are negative they'll say well i'm real i'm realistic it's the same thing you know so why not go through life with full of energy and motivation and and feel and in turning out negative as much as you possibly can not everything obviously but it's just such a better way to go through life right it's and really, i think it's good for this whole entrepreneurs really resist that very common human aspect. I, I have a friend who's a therapist who, and she tells me human beings make a dash for safety. Yes. Always. Yes. And I think entrepreneurs are able for whatever reason to resist that inclination. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so true. I remember before I, I was at UBS before starting my own firm and I was making a decision what I was going to do. And at the time, Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo, they wanted me to go on board with them and really life-changing money for me. At, at the time, I was 43 and I had three boys, mortgage, et cetera. I'm talking to my mother-in-law and my wife and we're kind of going back and forth. And 
my mother-in-law wanted to know what it was. And I, I told her what the number was. And she goes, oh my gosh. Because what? You're, you're going on your own? You're crazy. You're taking all the risk. You could lose it all, et cetera. And no matter, and you would say, well, and you probably say to yourself, if I'm in that meeting, in that meeting, if I'm in, if you were in that room and you listen to me, you probably thought maybe I was like, thought I was crazy and I should go to Morgan Stanley Wealth. But not one time did I say to myself, she's right. I knew what I wanted. And I knew in the end, it'll be even more lucrative than going to any of these places. And it's just something that I felt deep, deep down inside and something that nobody was going to move me away from. But she, my mother-in-law and my wife actually too, in many respects, they had that, they just had that safe feeling that they wanted because I had three boys and, you know, mortgage thing and all that type of stuff. But I was willing yeah. to go full throttle. For me, it happened kind of by accident. I mean, I, I had been in a career. I was working for a major media company. I was the main anchor of an ABC affiliate making a very good living. And when they decided not to renew my contract, I thought, I what am I going to do? And I, and I thought about it. And I thought when I left that job on the last night, I told my husband, I said, you know what? I'm just going to probably just hole up this weekend. I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be sad about this. I'm going to be trying to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to be scared, all of that. And it never happened. We were out on a, a hike a couple of days later. And I said, why don't I feel how I expected to feel? Why aren't I scared? Why aren't I sad? What What's wrong with me? <laughs> and he said, I think you feel unburdened by, you know, a place that didn't really match your values anymore. So maybe you ought to explore that. And I thought, well, you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> that is really awesome. Good for you. No, that's that's 100% of why I left these major banks. I was at the major banks for, for 20 years. Everybody would be like, oh, why are you leaving the major banks? You know, it's it's so uh, reputable to be working for these banks, et cetera. And I'm like, but you don't understand. These banks don't share the same values I do. There's so many conflicts at these banks. It's all about their bottom line profit. It's not for the client. It's for the bank. And I've always felt that. And that's why, like, you just felt, like you just said, like the way you felt, you're just like, I'm done. I'm like, I, and for me, I was like, I'm done. I'm like, there's no, I don't want to stay at these places anymore. You know, I, life is too short. I want the best for my clients. And, and that's what drove me to make the decision. Oh, that's great. That's great. It. No, it's, it's awesome. And the people can feel it. And ever since I transitioned here, from a business perspective, I'm up 30%. And, and I, you know, I get more referrals today than I've ever had in my career. And I'm not saying this in a broken bracket dose this way, but it's because I did what I felt was right. People can feel that. And it's, and people can feel that energy. And it's, and it's doing all the right things, which is great. It could. I mean, it took me three years, but I replaced my salary. So I yeah. feel good about it too. And that to me, I mean, you know, money wasn't the most important factor, but it is a factor and it is, um, it is. it's a litmus test. And the fact that I was able to, you know, on my own, replace that salary from a large company, you know, it was a great feeling when it happened. Amazing, amazing feeling, Christina. Congratulations. You're really awesome. I, I, I look, I, this was a, a really terrific interview. It really was. You know, thank I, you. I, I enjoyed uh, learning more about you and your background and your expertise, et cetera. So thank you very much for that. It was an absolute pleasure. Love getting to know you. Yeah, likewise. Look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you.